0: Computer. Welcome to the top M and A entrepreneurs today. My guest is John Warlow. John and I actually go back. First of all, uh, I'm going to read his bio here because you can see it on LinkedIn. John Warlow is the founder of the Value Builder System. He's the host of Built to Sell Radio and author of three best-selling books: Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry and The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and secrets. Now, I have two. I love these books. Uh, <laughs> uh, I should get them, uh, somebody to sign that, I guess. But uh, we also go back because I was working on an acquisition maybe four or five years ago. And I was trying to uh, acquire a, a company on Udemy who was a course creator. He sold a million courses. And I required an investor to bring it on. And I found this Irish guy who was fresh off, just selling his company for $175 million and putting a check in his bank for $175 million. And I said, Hey, John, or I I told this guy, you need to get on John's show. Yeah. So there you go. That's kind of our connection. So uh, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for that connection those years ago. And it's good to be back with you.
0: Yeah. So I got a couple of questions. I mean, I have a friend in the value builder system. Uh, he is a value builder which you know looks for companies to help build in and then accept at ed- a higher multiple uh, how many um, people in your network now that have gone through the value builder system that do that
1: yeah yeah sure so so we give you a sense value builder we license it to advisors uh, who want to build out their uh, you know their their Profile in in the exit planning space, and we've got uh, th- more than a thousand advisors now around the world that do value building, and uh, yeah, they 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 license our our tools and and content, and it helps us get our message out to the world.
0: Yeah, do you have any sense of how many businesses that they've taken under their wing helped? create more value in the organization, whether it's organic or whether it's uh, an acquisition, and then have ultimately sold to a strategic or financial buyer?
1: Yeah, we don't actually track the consummated deal, but we do track offers received. So we know that about 12% of our users have received a written offer to buy their business in the last year. So if you think about that, we've had 65,000 businesses complete the value builder questionnaire, which is like our intake questionnaire we use. So it's probably close to eight or 10,000 businesses that have received a written offer to buy their business in the last year. And that's up, you know, uh, it's been a very busy season right now in the world of M&A, as, as you know, that might change with interest rates on, on the way up. Of course, a lot of these deals are financed uh, with a lot of debt and cheap debt and,
0: right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and cheap debt at that. Right. So we'll uh, we'll see where that's going in the next uh, year or two, but uh, and how that's going to change the, the, the dynamics of, of the market. But, but yeah, right now it's a very busy time to sell a company.
0: Yeah, the uh, the partner, one of your valuable partners, uh, you know, said invited me in to help him grow his business, and I kind of went through the training, and I I noticed that you said that the net promoter score is the best predictor of future profits. Is that? I remember that net promoter score for four or five years ago when you were talking about that. Is that still a valid uh, statement?
1: Yeah it's it's one of the ways that acquirers evaluate a business and its potential, right? So, yeah. so obviously as part of a due diligence process, most acquirers are going to, it's going to try to measure levels of customer satisfaction among the customers of the, of the company they're looking to acquire. And if they're looking to a comp, acquire a company that's in distress, they would expect those numbers to be low. And if they've got suggestions on how to improve that, then they are obviously bullish on their ability to make that improvement. Where a lot of acquirers in particular private equity companies uh, use something called net promoter score as a way to make an apples to apples comparison between potential acquisitions. And it's, it's, it's simple as a technique. So for those of your listeners who don't necessarily know that acronym or have never heard that, that term before, it's called net promoter score. And basically what it, it does is evaluate uh, a, a, an acquisition, a company's, satisfaction levels with its customers. And it's based on a simple question, which is on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend or colleague? And it was developed by a guy named Fred Reichel. And what Reichel discovered was that the typical questions we ask on these customer satisfaction surveys are, are really not predictive of the future growth rate of the company. So from an, an like from an acquirer's perspective, they, they can often send wrong messages like you can do a traditional customer satisfaction survey with uh, a, a potential acquisitions customers And if you ask questions like how overall satisfied are you and, you know, would you, uh, uh, you know, did you get, you know, are you, you know, again, are you overall satisfied? You may get a positive response to that question, but that doesn't mean that that company is going to grow. And what Reichel discovered was that this one question, the scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend or colleague was actually very predictive of the growth rate of the company in the future. And the reason for that is that it predicts one of two behaviors companies are Customers who say, I'm a nine or a 10 on that question, scalar zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? The people who give you a nine or 10 of that are likely to either one, repurchase from you, or two, refer you. And so that's what makes that measurement so predictive is because not it's not the net promoter score in and of itself. It's because it predicts those two behaviors. And if you think of any company growing organically at a rate disproportionate to the economy, it almost always comes down to those customers are either stickier, like buying more over time, or they're referring and creating positive word of mouth, and that's why it's predictive and remains predictive. The other stat that we we talk a lot about, and again, it it's probably even more important today than it was five years ago, is the E N P S score. Have you ever looked at E N P S, John?
0: No. Yeah. Tell me about okay. that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So E N P S is Employee Net Promoter Score. And simply put, today finding great people. I mean, I, I don't know if we're recording this on uh, whatever it is, Friday, early May. Early May, and the new jobs numbers were out from the NFIB today, and it turns out that that uh, unemployment is is continuing in the United States to be very, very low. Uh, tons of jobs. So the current economic turmoil in the stock market has not necessarily trickled down to the job market yet. So the job market is thriving. And, and so it's hard to find people. And that, you know, nobody, you know, no, no entrepreneur would not agree with that statement right now. I, I, so I EN- That's
0: totally true. Yeah. true. yeah.
1: Yeah. ENPS measures the level of engagement your employees have with your company, how effectively loyal they are to your, co- your company. And so the question, and there's, it, there's variations of the ENPS question, but most of them come down to some variation of uh, would you recommend our company as a place to work, as to a friend or colleague, would you recommend our company as a place to work to a friend or colleague? And it turns out the answer to that question uh, relates to the level of engagement the employee has with that place. So uh, obviously, if they're going to recommend to their friends that to come work at that, they're they're pretty satisfied employee. And so that can be used in concert with Net Promoter Score, which is a measure of the customer satisfaction, uh, to get a, a nice sort of holistic kind of view of, of a company, if you're evaluating one for, for acquisition, as, as an example.
0: Yeah. If I was to start with a company, a smaller company, and I build it to 2 million even or 5 million, where it's an attractive to a private equity firm. Uh, and then I started shopping it. Well, you know, I build a relationship while I'm going it and tell the story all the way through. And then I start shopping it. Would they ask about that? Or would that be something that I need to uh, uh, volunteer, say our net promoter score is nine or 10. And I, I, I remember writing this down because it's a nine or 10, that's a promoters. Seven to eight, that's passive. Anything below that is a detractor, which means, yeah. Yeah, yeah when so you have- your
1: net promoter score is always expressed as, as a percentage. So it'll be like 56 or 32 and it's your percentage of promoters minus your percentage of detractors is how you get to a net promoter score, which is again, average is 15% one five Uh, world-class is considered 55 0%. And so if you are in the luxurious position of having a 50% net promoter score, uh, I would put it in the teaser. I would put it in the sim. I would boast about that from the mountaintops because, for a lot of private equity group investors, that's going to be a, an attractive uh, data point. Just like your gross margin, your revenue, your profitability. I mean, it's a very sexy number. If your net promoter score, by contrast, is three or minus twelve, or you know, that. then clearly you're not <laughs> going to you're not going to offer that up. Yeah. Again, private equity groups um, use it because because a, again, it takes the emotion out of the decision to buy a company or not. It's a very objective way to evaluate a company. There's no subjectivity to it whatsoever. Number one, number two, it allows them to evaluate uh, you know, acquisition candidate a versus B in, in an apples to apples comparison, because it's the same question rendered or used. So it it, it is uh, it is used quite a bit. So if so i would again if you if you had a very good net promoter score i think you want to you want to merchandise that in your teaser and, and again in your sim your confidential information memorandum if it's if it's you know average or below average i would i would anticipate that uh, that as part of their due diligence your acquirer may do their own satisfaction you know survey with your customers and if your customers happen to be large enterprise organizations, then they're probably gonna to want to do in-depth interviews with them, like one-on-one interviews. If you sell B2C or B2B, like small B, where you've got thousands or tens of thousands of customers, then you'd expect them to want to do yeah. that, some sort is of is that something that
0: they job. that's done by a third party, uh, because the P firm goes, Well, geez, anybody could say, you know, I'm 50%, nine to ten promoters, and yeah. They, so it's a third party kind
1: of deal. Yeah, usually yeah. they'll 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 hire a third party to do something, it, just like they would do a quality of earnings. You know, they they would hire a, an accounting firm to do a QV kind of evaluation of the of their books. That they'll hire, um, you know, a research firm to do uh, a little net promoter score survey.
0: Yeah, I have to kind of point this out. I don't know if this is true or not. You wrote this automatic customer back in uh, 1995 and it's like, right, Oh, not 2000, 2015.
1: 2015.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you were a ahead of the, I don't, I don't know. I, I could say ahead of, but people look at something evaluation goes, gosh, I love that predictable revenue and that SaaS model. And they're starting the multiples just started going up. I don't know if it was your book or, just you know, everybody else at the same time, but you crystallized it to say that's where companies started going after, going, I want that predictable revenue.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and 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 a real arbitrage play right now is taking a business that is is in using it still stuck on a transactional business model and and buying it and flipping it to recurring revenue because you get much more predictable revenue, obviously, but you get a huge jump in valuation. So right now, uh, you know, the car wash industry of all industries is going through a huge consolidation.
0: If they survive COVID, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully hopefully they've survived COVID. But uh, for those that did you know, those traditional businesses, you know, the local car wash, they valued their company based on, in, in a lot of ways, just the, 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 the real estate, the car wash sat on, right. And they think, oh, we've got this great real estate on this corner. So that implies no goodwill in the business. It's just, you know, basically the asset, the hard underlying asset of the real estate is, is the value. And so private equity groups picked up on this a while ago and they're like, okay, this is, this is a gold mine. So they're buying these companies for either the the book value that the value of the underlying asset or some paltry you know multiple of earnings two three times sde as an example they're flipping the car wash from one off you know transactions like get a car wash with a gas purchase to recurring all you can eat effectively come as much as you want get your car wash whenever you want to pay a $130 a month subscription and and they are a, a Ballooning the lifetime value of a customer, B, making their business a lot more predictable. C, you know, on a dollar for dollar revenue EBITDA um, perspective, you know, they're they're doubling the multiple, tripling the multiple. You know, like they're they're now selling these recurring revenue books of business for you know you know double digit multiples of EBITDA as opposed to what they bought them for, you know, two and three. So, I mean, I, that's a that's a bit of an old playbook that's been around for a couple of years. So I'm not sure how much opportunity there is in that space in the car wash space specifically, but but there's a lot of industries that are still clinging to a transactional business model. And uh, one of my favorite examples of this, it's in the book, automatic customer uh, is H bloom. They took a flower company
0: Yes. and
1: you yeah. know, typical transactional flower stores are terrible. You buy the inventory, it's rotting in the fridge. They throw out, like half of their flowers every single month because they, they forget or, or guess wrong. And H Bloom came along and said, well, why don't we sell subscriptions to flowers? And the only people that want to buy flowers on a recurring basis are hotels because they want that very, like that bouquet sort of five-star image when you check in on the reception table. And so all they did is sell subscription to flowers to hotels and I mean, the lifetime value in H Bloom subscriber, last time I talked to those guys, was like $4,500. So they make one sale. You know, a typical
0: flower store. And it's you, a you lifetime value in. is 4000 Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. A typical flower store, you, you walk in and buy a bouquet of flowers, you know, maybe 50 bucks, 60 bucks, whatever. They make one sale and capture over the life of that subscription $4,500. And so it's just, it's totally game changing for that yeah. business model. So yeah, recurring revenue is a big deal.
0: So that was a trend that's really now moved up to PE. Uh, Are are you seeing any, I mean, you're in the like midst of all types of information. Are you seeing any other kind of trends that change the multiples of a company?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the big one is going to be inflation, interest interest rates. It's not inflation, the interest rates reaction to inflation effectively. And so, as you know, private equity groups, uh, and individual investors, for that matter, you know, they live and die on debt. So the, the, the more of it they can get, the lower the price of it, the, the better the return they can garner provided the company can can underwrite the, the cost of paying back the debt, right? Um, right? There's enough cash flow to service the debt. And so as interest rates go up, it, it, it's going to become much harder and harder for private equity groups. So we'd expect, you know, valuations to go down as a result of that. Uh, we'd expect that that the less deals will get done, that the returns will be less favorable. Um, it, you know, the, the spoils will go to the well-financed private equity groups that have, uh, you know, lots a lot of cash, cash on their balance yeah. sheet. Yeah. 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 They're not having to borrow
0: as much. Yeah. And that could be, you know, Warren Buffett, whoever takes over for Warren Buffett types. Or on a larger scale. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, of. I mean, Warren Buffett's obviously, obviously you know, Berkshire Hathaway is probably the the largest of its kind, but there's lots of other sort of imitation funds and imitation businesses that, that are trying to be Warren Buffett light and, and, you know, buying small, medium sized businesses. So yeah, there's, there's lots of uh, examples yeah. of that, but, but it's going to, I think there's going to be some headwinds in that, in that as, uh, as we see interest rates going up.
0: Yeah. Did you think that it would turn out after three books, value bidders is value builder system like it did today i mean are are you a different person than you were when you started this many years ago yeah 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 um or did you have this vision in your mind what it was going to look like and it was very uh detailed about what that was going to look like no no i
1: I, no I, i did not have any
0: um the reason I brought that up is because I just yeah. read something the other day where Elon Musk doesn't have a business plan. He just goes on the, to like, yeah. I'm doing this. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I've been a I've been critical of business plans as well because I, I think, uh, you know, they are they're usually because I think let me put it this way: I think young people use them as an excuse not to start something. Uh, So they invest all of their time in writing a business plan because they, they think that's the right thing to do. Whereas what, in my view, a young person should do with, with very little to risk, you know, no, no mortgage, no kids to feed, et cetera, is just do it. Just get in the marketplace and try some things and see what sticks. Once you've got some real world data about what you've built or what you could build, then by all means, you can start to put some numbers together and s- for some forecasts. But but what I see is the inverse. I see a lot of people sort of you know uh, obsessing over every line in their business plan and every you know how, every every number in their spreadsheet. And of course, all of them are just fictional until there's actual some real world data. Real uh, world, so. actual,
0: yeah, yeah. I heard a, a
1: great story recently. A company called Hush, actually Toronto-based guys. Two guys uh, started this company. And one of them worked at a summer camp for disadvantaged kids and kids that have developmental disabilities. And the, at the camp, they used um, heavy weighted blankets to uh, allay some of the uh, the anxiety these kids had. So these weighted blankets are like for sleeping and they make they just make you feel more comfortable because they provide a little bit of weight without suffocating you. Anyway, he w- looked at the quality of these these blankets and they were just kind of poorly made and and shoddy manufacturing, foreign manufacturing and so forth. He's like, we could do these better, make them out of better materials, et cetera. And so what he did is put together uh, a little Kickstarter campaign and he had some friends from camp and so forth. Long story short, he sold 5,000 customers, 5,000 unique people to buy these blankets in advance. It totaled, they were know, between $100 and $400, depending on the size and style you wanted. He got a million five pre-orders for these blankets before even starting the company, $1.5 million of startup that, capital that, from customers.
0: That's demand, like let, keep in demand in yeah. front of your skis, right? <laughs>
1: that's exactly right. And, and didn't have to give up a stitch of equity in order to build the company. And I tell you that story only because You you know you talk about business plans you know that's that's an entrepreneur that's somebody who identifies an opportunity and and creates something out of nothing and 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 I think you know these folks who spend a lot of time on their business plans and kind of years and years go by it's just not well it's not time well spent what you need is market data what you need is get out there uh, tell the world about your product and see if they're interested.
0: Do you take uh, participation in any of the deals that come through your kind of the deal flow that comes your way or are you
1: occasionally, I, yeah. I mean, it's not our business model. Uh, I do some personal uh, investing that, that is uh, uh, that sometimes I'll hear about stuff that is either through my network or friends or whatever. And I, I do invest personally in some deals, but, but it, no, it, that's not part of the, the kind of value builder model. Uh, yeah. That's not uh, that's not our sort of
0: what's the, going through your career. You build three books and the, the value builder system, the, the, the podcast. You have created an audience, which is, you know, what we teach today. Create the audience, productize, monetize that audience and whatever product or that looks like. I mean, what advice would you give somebody today starting? This, I kind of want to do what John Warlow does like it, but it in a different industry.
1: Uh, interesting. So I just did a, uh, I do this. You, you mentioned the podcast at the beginning of the show So it's called built to sell radio. I just did an interview with James Ashford. James is the guy who built go proposal. So go proposal is a little software that accountants can use to better create faster proposals. Very simple add on that accountants can buy built it up to a million five in British pound turnover, sold it for a healthy eight figures. So great, great story. James is a prolific entrepreneur. The reason I tell
0: you this, what's that? Eight figures.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I got that email from
0: you. I'm on your email list.
1: Yeah. Do the math on, on that uh, in terms of multiple, it was a very, very lucrative exit. What I, the reason I, I, I raise it is that James started his company with a personal brand and he didn't have a lot of money. In fact, he had just come out of a business failure, so I had effectively no money, but committed to using social media. He said, "I'm gonna, you know, I've got an expertise in sales and marketing, so I'm gonna create these videos." And he created a video a day for you know years, and that was how he built Go Proposal. And and I and he also then you know used that YouTube channel and parlayed it into a book and a course and like you know all the classic sort of assets and extending those things that that one would do if you had an audience. And I I asked James, but but James, I mean, weren't you creating a lot of owner dependency because all of your sales and marketing came from you personally. And so, you know, your business isn't worth very much if if you leave. And he said, well, actually, it's interesting you say that because I identified that a couple of years ago. And so in 2019, he created this campaign internally called Kill the King. And what Kill the King was was a, an internal campaign for his employees to take over as the social media advocates for his company. So he promoted uh, a woman on his team to be their spokesperson for GoProposal. And she then started to do a lot of the webinars, a lot of the posting on social. He took a lot of the content from his book and created assets, social assets that were independent of James Ashford. It was content that they could use whenever they wanted, whether James was working or not. He had this whole strategy about kind of effectively migrating his personal equity, uh, brand equity, personal brand uh, that he'd built and, and, and built GoProposal on the back of and migrated it to the company GoProposal. And so when he sold it to Sage, the, the big accounting uh, software providers, they bought it with uh, not only uh, you know the, the, the company, but also the book that James had written. Uh, James agreed to stay on for a period of a couple of years after the fact, because they wanted him to stay on as a spokesperson. And so it's a nice little story of how do you make, how do you sort of migrate, that so it's a really long-winded way to answer your question which is
0: it it is the perfect answer because it's just the because of the power of social media whatever you're doing on linkedin or tiktok i mean i I look there's a a a woman miss excel i mean she just started doing these little TikToks things Mm. put a kajabi or thinkific course together it's a multi-million dollar business now.
1: that's great Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's lots of those stories out there that just, I I would just caution folks that if the goal is to build a valuable company that you could one day sell, you're going to want to migrate that personal brand equity to your company and be really thoughtful and proactive about that. So you'll notice if you, you sort of follow value builder, uh, value builder is our uh, our company for advisors, we license it to advisors, as we mentioned in the beginning. So Sam Mendelsohn is the president of value builder. He's got a social profile. He, you know, he promotes and pushes things out under his personal name. Value builder has a bunch of channels that are out there. And so while I, you know, do my part to help support it, uh, you know, the, the stuff I do is, is, is hopefully independent and, and, and intentional, intentionally independent of value builder. So it's, a uh, you know, it, I, I'm hopefully do my part to. Support You're doing the company. extricating
0: yourself. You're trying to do that. Uh, I mean, is yeah, it cool to have like nothing in your calendar over a 30, 30 day period? Just come <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm, Sam does a lot of the hard lifting, so I yeah, you know, I, I do have a good a good uh, good amount of free time, which I you know I value and 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 obviously that's part of the message of built to sell is is that once you structure a company that is not dependent on you you don't have to sell it you can certainly just continue on as i do as a as a you know an interested shareholder as opposed to uh you know the day to day operator of your company right, so that's
0: right.
1: that's um, a, working that's above a
0: huge i we, i've heard the uh, you know working in the business above the business
1: yeah in in on and above. Yeah. That's interesting. I've you want to above work
0: business. above the business. That's the goal, yeah. right? So everything yeah. you put into place systems, whatever it is, it's above.
1: Yeah. I think that's a, uh, that's a really nice analogy that I'd never heard of. You know, obviously heard of Michael, you know, read e years ago and oh, yeah. the cool concept of in versus on, which is classic, but, uh, but above is a cool twist on that as well. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that building to sell, I think is, uh, is such an important thing to do uh, because it gives you all of the the leverage you, um, and, and, and the lifestyle as well that, that you, I think yeah. most entrepreneurs are aspiring for. So.
0: so what do you guys do? What's a win for you as far as how do you celebrate a win? Is that somebody getting on your, that went through Value Builder and then it's on your show and you talk about it or what's a, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, there's there's lots of different wins. I mean, we'll, we'll celebrate. Uh, yeah, we'll celebrate first and foremost an entrepreneur who who punches above their weight and 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 has a great exit. So oftentimes they'll come on Build cell Radio and tell us about it, which is awesome. And yeah. that's great. You know our our goal as a an organization is to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. So it's our belief that today entrepreneurs kind of bring a knife to a gunfight, as the old expression goes, they they know everything there is to know about their business, their car wash, their dental practice, their car dealership, whatever, but very little about the process of selling it. And as a result, there is a whole army uh, of folks that that take advantage of them. And I think in large measure, we're trying to change that. We're trying to, to, to give entrepreneurs the the knowledge they need to 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 punch above their weight and make sure they get a fair deal. Because again, without entrepreneurs getting a really good return on their investment, I, I just, I really question where we would be as a society. Like I, you know, I think, I think about like, there's no iPhone, there's, there's no, well, there's no vaccine, you know, there's no, no, there's no Tesla, there's no, these companies are, In in are formed in the minds of entrepreneurs, and therefore we have to go out of our way to disproportionately reward that and create an environment where 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 entrepreneurs, small and large alike, are rewarded for the ideas they bring to the market. Uh, And so I think they should. I think that's a healthy that's a healthy thing for the environment. You know, I I, I live in Canada. I live in Canada, where where we have a A very left leaning prime minister who, you know, flirts with the idea, you know behind closed doors, and I don't have, I'm not privy to any of his thinking, but with the idea of raising uh, capital gains tax to the same thing as income tax. And that is wrong. It, it's just fundamentally on every possible dimension a poor decision. Uh, because you, you have to have incentives for entrepreneurs that are disproportionate to going to work for a company. Otherwise, you become France, where half of the workforce works on some way, shape, or form for the government. And France, if you don't know anything about the country, I mean, you know, it's intractable unemployment, uh, you know, very slow-growth country. There's a lot of problems with that. And so we have to be, uh, I think, a world, a society, a country that promotes and rewards entrepreneurs. And part of that is making sure they, they, they have great exits. And so that's. One. Yeah.
0: I, I, you were bringing that up. I watched some kind of Apple TV show uh, called the long way down with uh, uh, you and the Obi-Wan Kenobi guy. He took a motorcycle down from the top of Africa all the way down. Oh, cool. It, I've never seen and, that. It sounds great. Uh, it's, a, it's great, but it's just the difference between a system entrepreneurial system and a system stuck. 500 years earlier yeah yeah and the life that they live is so difficult you know just exist yeah yeah
1: Yeah. you know i I, it's not a political show but we you know like, like i think there is a a limit to like i think entrepreneurship without any reins or guardrails is not the right answer either. Like we do need. No, that no, was, more, uh,
0: that happened in the industrial society, taking advantage of workers right. 20 hours yeah, a, a day, got, seven yeah, days a week. Yeah, yeah, no, no.
1: Yeah. But, I th- but I do think uh, in particular in Canada, we, we have the pendulum has swift shifted, unfortunately, or swung too far uh, to uh, to the point where we're, uh, you know, we, we look, uh, we, we question entrepreneurs where, you know, we, we are critical of people who make money and we have tall poppy syndrome where we, we try to cut down successful people. And I just think it's a, a very unhealthy, uh,
0: yeah. Well, we right have now. that here too in the United States. Oh, is that right? You, you, you didn't know. build that, uh, type <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we don't
1: have uh, full ownership of that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, look, I, I appreciate this time. And, and, and I, I think this, uh, very enlightening and I appreciate it. Again, John Warlow from Built to Sell, Automatic Customer. And he's got a third book that I haven't purchased yet. So I'll uh I'll, I'll get to that. <laughs> so John, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, John. All right, take care.